This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. My name is Amir Eschel. I'm the director of the Forum on Contemporary Europe at the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies. It's a pleasure to welcome you to our breakup session at the conference, World at Risk, um, today. I'd like to begin by referring to an event, a press conference, and a report that came out uh, last week. Speaking on contemporary uh, terror threats to Great Britain, Eliza Manningham Buller, the head of Britain's MI5, said last week that her agency knows at the moment of 30 terror plots threatening the United Kingdom and that it is keeping 1,600 individuals under surveillance. She mentioned as well 200 groupings or networks involved in planning attacks and quoted a study claiming that more than 100,000 British citizens considered the July 7, 2005 attacks on the London transport system justified. This is to mention only one threat, one sort of threat in a variety of threats, and we heard earlier today about others. As we approach the topic of our conference, A World at Risk, focusing in this breakup session on Europe, we will ask how European governments and societies respond to a variety of contemporary risks, ranging from competing economic and political pressures to religious and ethnic conflicts. We will also be asking what actions are or should be taken to face these challenges. We are very fortunate to have with us a panel of distinguished experts whose knowledge and experience combines the best available historical, political, and policy-oriented perspective. Allow me to introduce our speakers to you in the order they will speak. Following the short presentations, we will open up to questions and remarks. Our first speaker today is Professor James Sheehan. Professor Sheehan is the Stanford University Dixon Professor in the Humanities and is also Professor of Modern European History at the History Department. He is the author of numerous scholarly works on European history and is a leading authority on 19th and 20th century Germany. Among his many works allow me to highlight German history from 1770 to 1866, German liberalism in the 19th century, and more recently, museums in the great, in the great German art world from the end of the old regime to the rise of modernism. Professor Sheehan has been a Guggenheim Fellow, a Berlin Prize Fellow at the American Academy in Berlin, and a member of the American Philosophical Society. In 2005, he was elected to serve as president of the American Historical Association. Our second speaker today, the Honorable Ambassador Hugo Pamen. Ambassador Pamen is a senior advisor for Washington legal firm Hogan and Hudson and for the German Marshall Fund. He's also special advisor to the President of the European Commission. Ambassador Pamen is also adjunct professor at the BMW Center for German and European Studies at the Edmund A. Welsh School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. 
From 1995 to 1999, Ambassador Pamin served as European Union Ambassador and as the head of the delegation of the European Commission to the United States. Previously, he was Deputy Director General for External Relations at the European Commission and led the European negotiation team at the WTO Uruguay Round. He also served as spokesman for European Commission President Jacques Delors and was Chief of Staff for European Commission Vice President. A career diplomat, Ambassador Parmen served earlier in the Belgian embassies in Geneva, Paris, and Washington, D.C. He holds degrees in philosophy and classics and political and social science. Ambassador Parmen is the co-author of Form From the GATT to the WTO, the European Community in the Uruguay Round, and has contributed to books relating to current diplomatic and trade issues. Our third speaker today is Joseph Joffe. Joseph Joffe is publisher-editor of the German weekly Die Zeit. Here at Stanford, he is an adjunct professor of political science, the Mark and Anita Abramovitz Fellow in International Relations at the Hoover Institutions, and the Distinguished Fellow at the Freeman Spogler Institute for International Studies. A frequent commentator on Europe in the U.S. media and on the U.S. in European media, <coughs> Joseph Joffe's essays and reviews have appeared in a wide number of publications, including the New York Review of Books, Times Literary Supplement, Commentary, and the New York Times Magazine. He is a member of the American Academy in Berlin, the Aspen Institute, and the Leo Beck Institute. Joe Joffe is the author of several distinguished books. Allow me to mention here only two. First, The Limited Partnership, Europe, the United States, and the Burdens of Alliance. And most recently, Überpower, the Imperial Temptation of America. Again, our first speaker today is Professor James Sheehan. Jim. Thank you. Uh, I thought that I would offer some general reflections on the relationship between the three items mentioned in the title of our session, uh, politics, economics, and terrorism, to provide a, a framework for our discussion this afternoon. Let me start with the relationship of politics and economics in the European Union. It seems to me that this is most often presented, this relationship, as a study in contrast. That is to say that the European Union is thought to be an enormous economic success, an economic triumph in any, by any measurement, any historical measurement we can think of, but there's always an air of disappointment about its politics, always a sense of its lack of fulfillment. There's an unfinished quality, people seem to think, about the Union. And one commentator after another talks about the incongruity of the European Union's economic strength and supposed political weakness. And the failure of the European Constitution is taken to be a, a symptom of this political, uh, the, the lack of, a, of arriving at a political destination. It seems to me that far from being incongruous, the relationship between Europe's economic strength and its politics is perfectly logical and indeed necessary. That the European world of the post-war era has been a world dominated by the primacy of economics. It's been a world dominated by consumer consumption, 
by the politics of economic growth, by the creation of consumer societies and civilian states, states that see as their primary function the establishment and maintenance of economic growth, public welfare, and consumer well-being. Far from being an unfinished political project, the European Union is a perfect reflection of these civilian states. The European Union is not now, nor I believe will it ever be, a superpower. It is a super civilian state, a super economic community. That's deeply embedded in the identity of European public culture. It is not something that a constitution is going to change. The notion that somehow or another the European Union will enter the constitution, uh, a constitutional convention like Clark Kent and come out the other end as Superman strikes me as being a very, very improbable set of events. Now that brings me to the third element in our triad, terrorism. One of the characteristics of civilian states and one of the characteristics of the European Union as an international organization is its inclination to think of foreign policy in domestic terms and to use the instruments of foreign policy that have worked so well domestically. Economics, law, for example. That is to say, the economic, the European Union is the international reflection of what matters to individual European states. And the inclination of these states is to use their economic power, their legal persuasion, their cultural influence to influence the international environment around them. This seems to me a perfectly logical, perfectly right, perfectly plausible thing to do. The European response to terrorism, therefore, is to look at it as a domestic issue, as a police problem, a problem of domestic order. The European notion of the Europeans' view, it seems to me, with considerable justice, with great skepticism, the notion of a war on terror. That terrorism is not like a war, not something you fight against a foreign enemy. It is something you fight against subversives, criminals, people within your own society that are threats to the domestic order. And the European approach to terrorism has, with considerable justice to my mind, emphasized this aspect of fighting terrorism, and again, I think with, with, some, with some success. What the Europeans have not been able to do is to find a common foreign policy or a common security policy which allows them to have the military power to fight terrorism in as much as it is an international problem in the classical sense of a military issue. There, it seems to me, the Europeans remain dependent upon the United States and will remain dependent on the United States for the foreseeable future. That is part of the price they pay for being civilian states. If I were a European, it would be a price I would be quite willing to pay. But in any case, it is a price they pay. However, notice the paradox in this relationship. Because the same values, the same inclination, indeed the same political identity that makes some degree of dependence upon the United States necessary, makes that dependence difficult to bear. Introduces into that dependence an air of 
tension and strain, which has been part of the Atlantic Alliance from the beginning. There's nothing new about that, but has had a particularly intense, uh, uh, intense expression in the last few years. Politics, economics, and terrorism fit together, it seems to me. They fit together in the European response, not because the Europeans have not figured out some constitutional solution to their problems, but because they fit together in a way that reflects, as I said before, European identity, European political culture, indeed the world that Europe has made for itself in the last 50 years. Thank you so much, Jim. Ambassador Pamit. Thank you. Um, when I thought that we had to talk about Europe in a conference that is about the world at risk. I thought that perhaps the best thing was to go back to at least what has been in the last year, the basics of what's happened in Europe. On the 25th of March next year, the leaders of the European Union will meet in Berlin to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the Treaty of Rome. But next to celebrating the fact that the treaty has gone for 50 years, which is sometimes an exception, I think what they probably will celebrate in the first instance is 50 years of peace and stability in Europe. And in a conference about a world at risk, it's perhaps good to remind oneself that the best contribution, probably, Europe could and can make to reducing the insecurity in the world is its, its existing with what it is. They have done it through a system, through a, an institution that based or conceived as a community of law, which makes it nearly irreversible. And they have done it also, which is quite remarkable, without defining what the ultimate form of this exercise will be. There is still, because it was in the original treaty and it's still in all the other treaties and would have been in the Constitution if it had been approved, the ever closer union of the peoples of Europe, which is the first sentence, of, which is in the first sentence of the Treaty of Rome. But nobody, and happily so, at least not as an institution, has tried def to define what the ultimate union could well be. And I think this was a very wise thing. Now, as was said, the European integration was from the very beginning and is still today, in the first instance, an economic union an economic union that's based on the integration of uh, the econom economies of the people. And as you know, this union has 
developed in the course of its history from the 180 million, more or less. It started with its now two, more or less 500 million people. So this area of stability and peace has increased over the years, and also the area of integration has increased as far as its coverage is concerned. Economic situation of Europe today is rather good. The third quarter uh, results are just out. Growth is even a little bit higher than the United States. But one has to say that if the economy of the European Union is good today, is to a large extent thanks to uh, the United States, thanks to the fact that the economy of the United States was going so well. Also, of course, what happened in the emerging countries of Asia, but to a large extent uh, because of the United States. There's one big problem, notwithstanding the good figures, which are quarterly figures, short-term figures. And the big problem is the long-term structure of the European economy. There was, uh, about a year ago, the leaders of Europe decided that it couldn't go on like that, and they decided in what is called the Lisbon program, because it was decided in Lisbon, that the competitivity of Europe needed some revamping. And there's a very interesting development. There was a time when the Americans were more effective in the sense that at the end of the day, uh, the productivity figures were better. But the Europeans uh, were behind the Americans as far as the time of working was concerned. In other words, the Americans work longer than the Europeans. Europeans have more holiday. It's very well known. Month of August. Yeah, don't call them. But uh, the Europeans corrected this disadvantage, you could call it, they certainly consider it as an advantage, of working less by being more productive when they worked. And all the figures, since 1940, let's say since the Second World War, there is a catching up of the figures of the productivity of the European economy vis-à-vis -vis the Americans, thanks to higher productivity of the work when, uh, when they work uh, on the European side. There is a but. Since 1995, it's very interesting, statistics since 1995 show that gradually, and this is going on today, the Europeans not only work less in time than the United States, but when they work, they have become less productive. Per hour? Hour. Yeah. Since 1995, so we work less, we, the Europeans, work less, and when we work, contrary to what happened before 1995, we are less productive than the United States. That's a real problem, you can imagine in terms of competitivity. That was the idea behind the Lisbon program. And uh, unhappily, 
this year when the leaders met, they had to realize that the first stage of the Lisbon program had not been implemented as it was foreseen. And they were thinking of doing something better and couldn't find anything better and finally have decided that, well, after all, the targets of this Lisbon program were the real target and they have been uh, taken over. So that's one of the challenges. Second challenge, uh, and it was already uh, mentioned, for the European Union is, of course, the story of the Constitution. Constitution is a long story in Europe. Uh, some people thought that this was really not the subject to bring up at this, at this moment. Uh, but it had a long history, and it was brought up by a generation of politicians who thought that after all what happened in the 20th century, and if Europe wanted to have a real solid basis, that in one way or another had to be written down in a constitution. Since 19, in the 70s, already an Italian member of the European Parliament, Mr. Spinelli, had made a draft constitution for Europe. Then it was sleeping a little bit because only one parliament approved this constitution. It was the Italian parliament of Mr. Spinelli. But all the others thought that it was not the right thing to do at that time. But then that same generation of people with the same kind of preoccupation thought that we had, they had to bring it up as Europe was proceeding. In any case, as certainly you are aware of, there was a constitution, constitution for Europe. And that was, in fact, a, I would say the consolidation, the formulation of what Europe had achieved until then. And in itself, perhaps not a bad idea. The political opportunity of this constitution, I think, can be contested. But once you decide that you do it, you better try to be successful in your exercise. Unhappily, they were not successful. As you know, there was a referendum in uh, the Netherlands and in France two referendums that came out negative. And the rule in the, in the European Union is that you have unanimity of the member states. So for the moment, the constitution is what we call on ice. It's no longer going on. Notwithstanding the fact that the large majority of the member states have approved this uh, constitution, La, um, large number of member states representing an overwhelming majority of the population of the European Union. So there is some reason to not totally uh, drop this idea or at least the content of this constitution. And it is one of the uh, intentions of the German presidency, because Germany has the presidencies uh, starting 1st of January of next year, the new Bundeskanzler has already said that this one of her priorities, that she will at least the basic elements of this constitution being brought up again and in one way or another uh, consolidated and approved. But it's not going uh, to be easy. Then there is uh, the fact that the European Union has after having been a kind of free trade zone, become an economic union, has gone more and more in areas which are no longer in the economic field. And more particularly today are more and more in the common foreign policy uh, area and even in the defense policy 
area, which, uh, of course, uh, is a natural next phase of an integration. Integrations, uh, when it's about economies and national institutions, are also subject of the so-called bicycle theory. If you don't move, you fall off. So integration, you have to continue uh, without, again, deciding how far you will go, because that's for the next generation to decide this. But uh, this generation and all opinion polls show that this is what the European people want. They want Europe to act as one entity vis-à-vis -vis the rest of the world. And not only the European population wants this, the rest of the world wants this. There's not one crisis in the world these days where in one way or another the people immediately concerned don't ask the European Union, first of all, certainly to contribute financially, but also to play a role. And you have seen what happened in the Balkans, what happened in Afghanistan, um, what happens uh, with Iran. More and more the European Union is considered to be a useful player in certain circumstances, not the player as the United States is, but perhaps a convenient second role uh, player next uh, to the United States. All this seems to indicate that the second contribution which the European Union could make next to the fact that it is this area of peace and stability in the world and in an in ever increasing larger dimension, the second contribution is probably, given that increasing role, try to be in good terms with the United States. Because it is certainly, as far as the concepts, the values of society, the country in the world or the entity in the world that's closest to the United States. Now, we certainly have learned that that's not what has happened recently. The dialogue between the United States and the European Union has not worked very well. We will not say that too publicly, but in reality it has not worked very well. And we can give examples. The question is how uh, this can be improved, uh, in how far this is a question of institutions, in how far this is a question sometimes perhaps of personalities, uh, but it is clear that uh, at least in recent times it hasn't worked very well. The second Bush administration in the beginning has certainly with uh, Condoleezza Rice at State Department, has made an effort. It has turned out to be, to a large extent, more, I would say, presentation than uh, substance. But it is clear that uh, in Europe, not only on a certain number of basic elements of foreign policy, there are differences, and it hasn't worked very well. When you go from, I would say, the Doha round, the negotiation, multilateral trade negotiations, in the Doha round, the whole area tell the Middle East, there are a lot of areas where it could have worked much better if uh, the United States and Europe had had a somewhat substantial uh, dialogue. Let's hope that in the near future this will going. Uh, will go better. I think it would be in the interest, certainly of both sides, it would certainly be in the interest of peace and stability in the world. Thank you. Thank you, Ambassador Pamain.
Joseph Joffe. Before I go from the macroeconomic, macropolitical level to the micro level, I want to uphold the honor of the European worker. It is true that he works about 300 hours less per week, but that only refers to document as uh, per, 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 per year, but that refers only to documented work. Huh. Given very high tax rates and other, other barriers to market entry, um, a lot of GDP in Europe, a lot of growth is undocumented, yeah. uh, especially in my favorite country, Italy. So, and, Spain. and probably Belgium too. Spain. Spain. So um, they, they work, and as you, as the testimony to that is, you know, vast, these big box stores in the cities, outside the cities, you know, self-help, uh, you know, what do you call these, mark the, 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 what are they called here, these, where you buy tools and wood, what? Home improvements. Like Home, home Depot. Home Depot. Home Depot. Home Depot. <laughs> okay, that's so much for, for upholding the honor of the European worker. Um, I would like to speak about my more, do, do talk a little bit more about micro, micro social issues, and it has to do with Europe's failure to integrate those who in the past have, and are likely in the future, to, to provide the pool for, home, for homegrown terrorism, which is Muslims. Um, you know, 9-11 was imported terror, European terror, London, Madrid, uh, Amsterdam, and so forth, was homegrown. I mean, people who actually should have been part of the community uh, and were not. Uh, so we have a problem of, what, call it integration, assimilation, whatever, but the fact is that we have 20 million Muslims in Europe, they're growing twice the rate or more than twice the rate than 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 the Europe than 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 the normal European the the, the home homegrown Europeans, the the, the 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 rate in fertility rate is about one to one point four to about over three, and there's a steady influx. So we have a real problem with integrating a steady and growing flow of immigration and population growth. And I think we have a problem. Let me give you some numbers, some pub, pub, public opinion numbers on the problem. After the, uh, the subway, the tube attack in 2005 in London said British Muslims, British Muslims, of, of British Muslims, 13% thought that terrorists, those terrorists were to be seen as martyrs. And 7% said that attacks on civilians in England, under some circumstances, should, uh, would be le uh, legitimate. So you say 7% is okay. Uh, it's a small number, but if you think that in London you have one million Muslims living there, and 7% are 70,000 people, and that's a nice little pool in which um, uh, those few who actually do throw the bombs can swim like fish in the water. Uh, and Britain is such an interesting case because we always thought that Britain was the most hospitable to, uh, to immigration of all kinds, but another, another poll tells us that 60% of British Muslims want to live under Sharia. And uh, one-fifth of them sympathizes with the feelings and motives, quote-unquote, of the subway bombers. So, so the, 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 the problem we're all facing, uh, Britain is a dramatic case, but I can give, there are probably other numbers like that for the rest too, is the inability of key European states to integrate, assimilate, make members of the community uh, 
that that particular group and other groups which do not share you know your skin color religion culture and so on um, why why is that so and I think it's it's worth to kind of compare compare the issue with the United States but first my, my first answer is this. It's difficult. What we have here is that, that every single approach to integration seemed to have failed. Uh, it is easy to get citizenship in, in Britain. It has become harder to get citizenship in France. It's become easier to get citizenship in Germany. But, and the labor market is a lot easier in Britain than in those continental countries, but I think all of these experiments end up with one big ticket item, segregation. It's segregation either by multiculturalism in Britain or Holland, which says, you know, you can do whatever you want, you can live whatever you want, we don't, we're not going to claim that you should become a good Dutch or a good German, live, uh, 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 Brit, live the way you, uh, you want to live. And strangely enough, the, the, the opposite of that approach, the French approach, which is, you know, dis, you know determined assimilation, everybody can be Fran uh, French, uh, no matter where you come from, ends up in a different kind of segregation, which I would call segregation by banlieue. So in the, in the first part of the first place, it's self-segregation in own little cultures, and here it's perhaps segregation by the majority in the banlieue, which are these suburbs around the big cities. So no matter how liberal, no matter how multicultural, no matter how assimilationist, no matter how, how, how tolerant and hospitable these various countries are, we end up with populations in them which do not seem to be part of the community. And I've often wondered why this is the case, and I kind of looked at the United States. Uh, why, why, does it, why does it seem to be easier to integrate the multitudes in this country? Um, of course, it's formally easier to become an American. It takes five years once you have your green card. But that's not the same thing. I think it's, it's kind of culturally, pop culturally to high culturally easier to become American. First of all, everybody comes from somewhere else. So you know that you come from somewhere else, from Mali or, or Beirut or what have you. doesn't matter so much in a country where everybody else is from somewhere else. Uh, second, in this country, there's no state religion. So anybody can do his own thing. I don't like this church or that synagogue. I have my own. But you see, it was not my cell phone that's doing that. Uh, there's a kind of supply-side religion in this country where everybody can, can find his own God in his own way and doesn't have to either impose his religion on the, on the rest or have the majority's religion imposed on him. I've already mentioned flexible labor markets makes a lot of difference. Whether you live in a country where you can sell your work at the price that clears the market or whether you live in Europe where there's mandated high wages and rigidities which excludes a lot of people from, from the labor process white, green, black, blue, or brown, uh, and especially the young, the unqualified young. Um, in this country, I think it's more important, the question where you got your diploma is more important than where you come from. 
I think it's also kind of culturally easier. To, if you want to become an American, it's easier to become one here. There's so many ways in which you become American. Uh, you can acquire a lot of American habits very quickly because they're easy to acquire. You can buy an SUV. <laughs> that makes you part of the majority culture in California, right? You can shop till you drop. That makes you part of the majority culture all over the country. Uh, you can join the PTA. You can, you can go to baseball games. You can train the kids out there on the, on the lawn, you know, in soccer or what have you. Um, you can volunteer. Um, you can fly your flag on 4th of July, which nobody does in, in most countries of Europe. You can, you can stuff yourself on Thanksgiving, which is the highest civil religion holiday in this country. Um, and as I said, you know, you can, you can go to service in your church, synagogue, or mosque, and nobody tells you that you can't or you should, or, 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 where, or, where, or where you can't do it. So I think the funny thing is the paradox I want to end with, of which we, we should surely argue, is that I think you still have a very strong nation state and nationhood, feeling of nationhood in this country. And once you have that, if you want to, it's easier to become part of it. It is really easy if you wanted to become American, but how do you become a Belgian? Excuse me. Belgium, Belgium itself is split in, in, in two, two or three units. How do you become Italian? How do you become, uh, how do you become French? Um, there are none of these civic uh, national habits like uh, shop till you drop or fly, fly a flag that makes it so easy to, for you to become, to become part of the Part of the part of the general culture, and to con to, to 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 conclude on this note, I'll t I have a nice anecdote. Uh, Germany uh, uh, has very large Turkish population, around two and a half million people, and those Turks were brought into the country as so-called guest workers uh, in the 50s already. So these Turks were trying to become good Germans, and so I looked around on the assembly line. What were these dudes smoking? Everybody was smoking what was then a very famous and widespread German brand which, uh, called HB. So they all started smoking HB. The Germans noticed that those Turks were smoking their cigarettes. They switched to Marlboro. <laughs> End of the story. Let's thank Joe and all our panelists. <laughs> and the floor is open to remarks, questions, suggestions, etc. Please, Dick. Uh, the conclusion, at least, that I draw from, from Joe's comments as well as the events of the last few years uh, is that the terrorist threat in Europe is at least as great as it is in the United States. And if you accept that proposition, do you see over the coming years more of a convergence between how Europeans view terrorism and how the United States views terrorism, in which we sort of begin to converge towards, towards the middle uh, as politics changes in the United States and we begin to institutionalize a little more our, quote, war on terror, where we see Europe becoming uh, less sympathetic. Uh, that's not the right word. But, uh, uh, more aggressive, I say. Do, do you want uh, me to answer? Is it directed to me? Yeah. Well, yes, and the rest as well. So maybe we start with Jim and then go 
No, let's not have every answer, every question answered by all three. Well, we have 15 minutes left. Whoever wants to take, <laughs> no, would you like to? Well, I, I mean, as you, as you know, the, both the British and the Spanish have long traditions and experiences of dealing with terror, uh, the Irish and the Basques. Um, and so, I, I, in, in some ways, I think it's less of a shock for them. And I, as I said in my own remarks, I think, they, I think Europeans tend to think of it in quite a different way. The notion that, that there's a war that you can win is, I think, not a sensible way of thinking about terrorism, which is an endemic problem that we're going to have to face for decades, if not a century. And I think both the, French, both the Spanish and the British, with the Irish and the Basques, have fought that long, difficult, costly twilight struggle. We ought to learn from them. I, I don't think, and I'm not an expert in this, I'm, I don't think that there will be as much um, terrorism at least on, this, at the same, on the same theme, the theme of uh, present terrorism, which we all know um, what it is. There are two countries where there have been acts of terrorism on the same theme. It was in London and it was in Spain, but those were the countries that were with the United States. I think the present terrorism, the context of the present terrorism, which is funda Islamic uh, fundamentalism, uh, was against the American superpower and the perception, uh, rightly or wrongly, <laughs> of uh, the Muslim world that they had not been treated in, in different uh, ways and in different contexts and so on. But we had national uh, terrorist activities, it's clear. Uh, a lot of people have been killed in uh, Ireland and uh, have been killed in Spain. And don't forget how the Catholics have murdered the Protestants and the Protestants have murdered the Catholics in the history of Europe. So it's not that we are uh, reluctant uh, to come out with our convictions if necessary. But the present wave of terrorism, I think, is less uh, vibrant uh, less active in Europe than it is in the United States, or uh, than against the United States, for the reason that uh, there is this very specific tension between the Muslim world and the United States. I, I, I disagree. I wish it were that easy. Because if it were that easy, then all we have to do is to go into a consistent policy of appeasement or propitiation. Would be a good step. Would be a good. I think the problem runs is runs a bit. It's 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 not not that simple. The Van Gogh murder had nothing to do with, with, with Holland being in Iraq. The second bomb in Madrid was found weeks after the Madrid parliament had already um, announced that they would withdraw from, 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 from Spain. And so that, that thing cannot be explained in, term of, in terms of the participation. The Canadian plot earlier this year was, was exposed in a country that was very, very critical. Of um, of the the American role in Iraq, so I I don't think it's going to be that easy. I think I think that our problems run deeper, and they have to do with the encounter of Muslims and modernity in countries that that are not very good, as I said, at um, integrating, assimilating, or just making them part of the part of the community. And if you look, if there are statements, the statements are not only directed against the United States, they have to do with uh, 
you know, the way Muslims want to live in Europe. I mean, it's like, yes, I, my favorite is, is, is Sheikh Omar Bakri Muhammad uh, in London who said after Madrid, I think I'll, one day I'll see the, the flag of Islam over, over 10 Downing Street. So I think, um, or let's put it this way, the end of the war in Iraq will not end our problem with, with homegrown terrorism. Um, what I would add in terms of the question about you know, convergence, I think that, that the Europeans, there's always the, 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 the possibility of opt-out for the Europeans, appeasement, propitiation, what have you, which is you know, not maybe dishonorable, but it's, it's rational for, for a small for a small country, uh, you know, to separate from, from its ally. But the interesting thing is that, that um, the consciousness that we are facing a deeper problem than just the war in Iraq or Palestine, what have you, uh, uh, I think can be suggested by the fact that there's a slight convergence between Europe and the United States on, on terror, on, on Iran. I mean, suddenly the, the Europeans have become a bit tougher on Iran than they were for three and a half years. They have recognized that they have a strategic problem, so they send their troops to Lebanon. Uh, on the, on the you know, wise assumption that you know, if you have to fight something you don't want to fight in your own borders, you want to kind of uh, quarantine the issue in Lebanon. So on balance, I would say slight convergence, but the opt-out the opt option will always remain for Europeans. And let me just say one more thing. Uh, 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 Spanish and Irish terrorism cannot be compared with, with that kind of terrorism. They could be pacified. I mean, the ETA could be pacified by saying, you know, we give you autonomy. And the Brits, after kind of fighting them hard and hard and hard, they kind of made certain political compromises, and the RA at least pretended to lay down its weapons after they'd gotten a, a bigger cake of the, bigger share of the political cake. I don't think there is that kind of propitiation possible with, with Islamist terrorism. I would say in pure economic terms, I don't talk about the social aspect of it, but in pure economic terms, of course, there's an enormous benefit, advantage, let's say, for the United States economy. If the United States economy doesn't have the degree of inflation which it could have, it's to a large extent because of the illegal immigrants. Please. Yes. Um, Mike from Stanford. I want to first express my appreciation for these presentation, the first two of which I really agree with entirely. Uh, but 
Mr. Yaffe, you left me a little bit disappointed in that I think you correctly pointed to the internal problem of an unborn, native born, I mean, European born Muslims causing serious difficulties, including in the born Iran Paris. And you didn't prefer any any direction or approach toward a solution. I would be interested in knowing. Do you want me to disappoint you some more? All right, I'll disappoint you some more. I think I said it, at least I indicated it. I think, well, in fact, my whole speech was kind of dedicated to that issue. But let's start, let's start with, with opportunity and flexible labor markets. In, a country that, in countries that have a kind of structural unemployment of 10, 12, or if you, count, if you really count it honestly, if you add it, you know, make work schemes, probably closer to 12 and 15 percent, you price out certain people from the labor market. And it, the, the, those who are most vulnerable, those who don't speak the language very, very well, who don't have the proper education, who don't have the proper training. So, so by, by raising the bar so high, either we force them into the submer uh, submerged economy, as the, the Italians call it, economia sommersa, or we, 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 we drive them off into the banlieue, what have you, into the, into the ghettos or into the hands of uh, radical, radical mullahs. That is, I think, a change in the structure of the labor market would, be, would make a lot of difference, but not all the difference. As I said, there's also a cultural, there also has to be a cultural integration. It says, you know, this is the way you could become French, Belgian, German, Italian. Very hard in an in a ethnically reasonably homogenous society. Um, so that's, there has to be kind of a paradigm change in, in these very old nation states that have been around for 2,000 years as distinct ethnic cultural entities. Can, can I say something? I think I agree with most of the things, uh, what you said in terms of difficulties of integration. But you have to be aware of the enormous advantage of the United States being the United States. Big, big. To become, to become a member of a, a citizen of the la one of the largest, but certainly the most powerful country of the world, is, is something. It's better than whatever you think about good things we think about Germany or Italy or Spain. It's, it's different. The American dream doesn't exist in Europe. You don't have a German oh, dream, an Italian dream, yeah. or, and the European dream doesn't exist yet, I would say, but certainly doesn't, doesn't exist. So it, that's certainly for me an element of, uh, that facilitates the integration. The second uh, element of integration is certainly the language that's spoken in such a big country. You can go from one coast to another and you have the same, the same language. So if you have to learn a language, your Spanish speaking or whatever, you only have to learn one language. In Europe you have to learn quite a lot. And a third element which I think is perhaps less true than it was before is the fact that the United States is a children-friendly country. Mm. That's very important. Integration goes very often through the children. And there's not a more children-friendly country, I would say, in the world. I don't know who do it, but if I compare Europe and the United States, in any case, my experience is the United States is much more children-friendly. And that's very important for the integration. Well, that's OK. We'll, we'll soon run out of children. Please. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, may I uh, come back to one point Professor Sheehan may have answered my question in part.
by saying uh, that Europe has experience with uh, the mentioned the IRA and, and the But these movements are not very terrorist uh, groupings, which are not uh, the best examples for, for what we should underline from our European perspective. So you said that the European approach towards the combat of terrorism is rather a police approach, which is basically true. But one should keep in mind that uh, we have experience in Germany with the Water Army Fraktion in Italy, with the Brigade Rosse and their motto, Nota Continua, the battle goes on, we will not give up. And uh, of course, France has made all experiences with them. But mentioning these They had a very heavy and powerful Middle East component. Uh, all these evolved in terms of the Cold War, uh, which included that they found safe havens in the communist countries, including East Germany, things which we get to know now after uh, the reunification. And um, of course, uh, these terrorist groups, the Brigade Rosse and employed conspirative methods. That means methods and strategies employed by the intelligence community, which made it extremely difficult to get them. And in the end, they were all hunted down, up to Carlos, the most uh, wanted uh, terrorist in the world. And this was only possible through a very, very efficient cooperation, police cooperation in Europe, and when we look at Europol, uh, which is a new body which has been created, and uh, it has made a very, very uh, good progress. So this approach should not be underestimated. We do our share in Europe uh, by employing the methods we have experienced with, only just as a comment. Well, I think that's helpful. And I don't agree with Joe that, that, that there's no uh, comparison between these other terrorists and the current ones. Sure, they're different. Of course they are. But I think there's some important lessons to be learned. And one of the lessons to be learned is that free societies can manage this problem. Um, if you and that we should not overreact. And we should not make these people think they're more important than they really are. Um, we can manage this problem. We, we are big, powerful, well-integrated societies with enormous capacities. We are vulnerable, partly for the reasons we heard this morning, in that these groups have uh, weapons available to them that they didn't have before. Certainly we're vulnerable. But with our vulnerability goes an enormous resilience and co cohesion and power. And we should not lose sight of that. We should not lose our nerve. And we should not let our political leaders frighten us and use this for their own political purposes. I make that as a bipart totally bipartisan remark. Because I think the most important thing we have to keep is our nerve and our values. And if we lose those, then the terrorists will win. Please well spoken. Thank you. Um, just just two, two points. One, uh, to agree that uh, we should defend the honor of the European worker. Um, I can't 
of a country which has had 600,000 people come from East and Central Europe in the last two years, and we live uh, by the Polish plot, I can tell you. Uh, it's, been, it's been a remarkable, remarkable phenomenon. Uh, is this Britain? Britain? In Britain. Yeah. This is most, mostly undocumented, but this is, this is the largest scale immigration we've had in the two years ever, probably in our history. Uh, and uh, if you walk down the street anywhere in Southeast England, you'll hear some Slav language being spoken as people go. Uh, it's been a very positive experience, in my, in my, in my opinion. Um, secondly, though, on the, on the issue of, of terrorism, uh, it does strike me that uh, although um, there are similarities with what's gone before in terms of methods and in a way of tackling the kind of terrorism we're looking at in, in Europe today, uh, there's a lot of things we don't understand. And I think this is one thing that strikes me very much, that yes, we have uh, uh, police methods. Yes, you quoted Eliza Manning-Buller, who uh, and the, uh, our security service has doubled and will double again over the next couple of years try and con uh, deal with this threat. Um, but we don't really quite understand what's going on out there. So this is only one part of it. Policing is one thing, uh, but we need to understand much, much better what is causing people, some of whom are highly educated, some of whom have very good jobs, some of whom are second generation speak better English than I do. Uh, why do they want to blow themselves up and kill a lot of other people at the same time? Uh, and uh, and uh, this is the challenge I think we've got in the period to come. I think the challenge around European countries, there are some commonalities, uh, but there are also a lot of differences. Um, the, the, uh, in, 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 even in Britain, if you go around London, uh, it's a very varied situation. The modernism million Muslims you mentioned from come from a vast majority, vast number of countries. Uh, in the north of England, where the mo most problem is, they come from a few villages, actually, in Pakistan and uh, particularly in Kashmir. Uh, obviously in France, mostly from North Africa, in Germany, as you mentioned, mostly from Turkey, and, and mostly third, fourth generation people now. Different, different issues. But I think just as we learned 20, 30, 40 years ago about communism, we need to start learning about Islam in, 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 in Europe. And we're a long way away from understanding what's going on when people say they want to create an Islamic caliphate in Europe. Well, why, just a question, why not learn, actually, more, be, be more eager to learn why second and third generation Muslim immigrants, or immigrants in, in Europe, and most, many of them, are doing worse than their than their predecessors. Right. Right. Why do we have this inverted? You know, it's the, the opposite of the of the great American myth. You know, it's Lower East Side, Midtown, Westchester. Well, I think you're right. And here's the other way around. <laughs> I think you're right, and something has changed because I can remember uh, in the 70s and 80s, uh, integration was much better than it is now. In Britain, so something has changed in Islam as well. I think yeah, it's part of the, part of the answer. Mm -hmm. So we'll take one final question, please. I haven't heard anything about demographics and all of this, the connection between uh, politics, economics, and terror. And uh, uh, Europe has this unique position, perhaps Japan is another, but Europe in particular in the global uh, uh, stage has this incredible demographic of, of declining uh, population, indigenous population. How, how does that fit into the, the, the calculus of these three components? And it's to anybody that would like to answer. Well, it's you know it's, it's 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 usually a very tricky subject. The French don't even count their their Muslim immigration. Uh, all we know is that in the first two generations, birth rates are more than twice as high than European birth rates. And then, as always, <coughs> the newcomers once they have second generation, then it, it approaches the uh, the the birth rates of the locals. So um, there's a problem. Yes, we'll have a growing and growing Muslim population, which is going to be fed by 
first and second generation growth rates plus I would think you know an enormous and increasing uh, influx because we know we know apart from those demographics we also know that you know you've heard these things you know up to 50 percent of in around the rim the Islamic rim of the, the Mediterranean are under 18 and they live in systems and economic systems which so show no sign of generating the kind of jobs that will integrate these kids into their society. So there's going to be, those two forces are pretty difficult to break, which, hence my conclusion. The, the demographics I was talking about was the, 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 the lack of fertility of the indigenous population. Well, yeah, but, but and, and is there anything that can be done there? No, no. You're going to, you think you're going to, no. No, because you're talking about a secular process which has been going on since the, the end of World War II, you know, a straight line decline in birth rates throughout Europe, in some more than elsewhere. The worst are the Spaniards, they're almost down to 1.1. Uh, then follow the Italians, 1.2, with the richest part of Italy, the Lombardy, 0.9. Germans, 1.3, and the worst cases, by the way, Russia. <laughs> And uh, we, we don't have the time to go to go into into this. But if I'm born again, I want to become a demographer because because what explains birth behavior is the most fascinating question around. And there's no single there are no single answers. There are no anyway. Ambassador, please. Yes, it, in the context of the discussion on, on what I call the Lisbon program, by which the Europeans want to revamp the economic uh, economy, it has been recognized as a problem, the aging of the European population. And there are now, <clears throat> before the leaders, before the heads of state and government, a certain number of uh, documents with proposals on how uh, what they call economic integration has to be better organized. So apart from the, the birth rate, which indeed is uh, different, the uh, highest being the French, because that's the only country that has a uh, positive, uh, how do you call that, birth policy, natal, natal? Pro-natal. Pro Pro-natal uh, policy. It's the only country in the European Union. But as a whole, and in the from the economic point of view, which I think was what your question was about, uh, finally, they have recognized, and clearly for the moment they approach this problem now uh, by better organizing economic, what they call economic integration, which can be in immigration for a certain period of time, which does not uh, necessarily uh, simply aim at assimilate the uh, immigrants, because one of the reasons why uh, the integration doesn't work that well, one of the reasons, is also that a lot of these people don't think that they will stay in Europe. They are so close. They come from northern Africa, and they come to Europe very often without their family. They make money, and in their mind, they think after three, four years making money, I go back. The majority does not go back. But the initial intention, and studies have been made about this, the initial intention was that they came to make money and then to go back. So the mentality of the people is not 
so much to integrate. In mentality is to make money and then to go home. That the people have now understood, and the European Commission has just published uh, two or three documents about how you can organize economic immigration. People that come definitely, people that come only by temporary contracts, and how you can make it easier to organize all this. Ladies and gentlemen, before asking you to join me in thanking our panelists, I wanted to mention that one of the topics we touched on, namely ethnicity and Europe's new ethnic configuration, will be the topic of a major international conference that the forum will host next year. So I hope you'll stay tuned and join us in approximately a year from now. But first, let's thank our panelists. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.